1: Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Welcome to one of our bi-weekly topical podcasts. Uh, Today, I'm delighted to join our editor-in-chief, the director of the Centre for Policy Studies, Robert Colville. Robert, welcome. Thank you for being with us. Hello. All the way from the office next door. And a regular CapEx writer and guest on the podcast, the deputy editor of Conservative Home, Henry Hill. Henry, welcome. Good morning.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Great to have you with us. Um, we are going to, as ever, split the podcast into a few sections. First of all, we're going to talk about the drought and the criticisms of the water industry, which uh, Rob has written a very comprehensive piece about for CAPEX this week. We're also going to talk a bit about infrastructure there and reservoir building, which Henry has written about this week. So that'll be our first section. Then we'll move on to the unavoidable issue at the moment of energy bills, what's coming down the track this winter, uh, what the options are for the next Prime Minister. And then to round things off, we're going to focus back on the Tory leadership and specifically on some of the polling there, because Henry runs the Conservative Home Members Survey, which has been highly influential uh, during this debate. So we'll get into some of the, some of the weeds uh, there and how the race is going and how we see things panning out. But t- to start off with, I mean, this week has been dominated by uh, criticism of the privatised utilities, be it the water companies or the energy industry. Um, Rob, you've written a very long, detailed, tastic piece for us uh, on CapEx and a, a Twitter thread which explains it all in great d- um, detail. So, what, I mean, what is the charge sheet against the water industry from politicians of all stripes? As you mentioned, it's not just Lib Dems, Labour, but Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss have weighed in as well. What's the charge sheet and why, in your opinion, is it misguided or wrong?
3: Yeah, so the the basic charge, and there's there's various different versions of this, is that um, privatisation of the British water industry transferred ownership to a bunch of asset strippers they loaded themselves down with debt they paid themselves all vast amounts of money they didn't really invest in in the network so there's there's a kind of there's a sort of financial um, angle which is that it's basically a rip-off and that, um, that, that too much money is going into shareholders pockets then there's a separate but sort of overlapping critique which is that uh, you know billions of gallons of water are draining uh, are, you know, are draining away sewage is being discharged uh, into into the open seas our rivers, uh, the quality of our rivers and beaches is is falling again. Essentially, you know these again these you know selfish profiteering, uh, awful evil companies have neglected our infrastructure, have have let it rot, have been you know perfectly happy to do all sorts of um, horrible horrible things. Um, so my and my objection to this is that um, much of it isn't based on fact, or rather it's based on sort of not looking at. Anything about the British water industry, anything about how it's changed over time, and anything about uh, how what happens in other countries as well. Um, so, to cut a sort of long, boring, chart chartastic story short, um, essentially, what you have under uh, under nationalisation is um, a situation in which the water industry is, and water network is starved of capital, because whenever anyone goes in to see the treasury and says, "Hey, can I have..." sort of X billion pounds to fix the water network, they get told, yeah, we'd love to help, but actually we have some schools and hospitals which are falling apart and some unions which are on strike and we kind of need to fix that first. So one of the things which happens after privatization, which is really, really obvious, is investment goes up and it it stays up. Um, at, you know, at levels which are very significantly higher than what we've seen before. And in fact, if you look at the current charts, the, the um, Ofwat, which is the economic regulator, has agreed with the, com- the water companies that they will spend £51 billion pounds on the water network um, in the next five, in infrastructure in, in the next five years. And that is... Uh, so that's 2020 to 2025. 2020 that- 2025. 20 and that's, yeah. if you look at the chart, that is billions of pounds more than is being spent by pretty much any other European country. In fact, um, you know, it, we're, we're sort of close to the point where we're spending as much as, like, most of them put together, um, which is a sort of odd argument if you say we're not, you know, investing in this stuff. Um, and then the other argument is about sort of leaks and, and pollution and that kind of thing. And the, the point I make is, like, the, the, the world of the privatised water industry, it's, it's not a free-for-all. It's not a kind of... Um, you know, it's not a situation where the, the the companies run rings around the evil regulator they get sent incredibly strict targets for what they have to do and if they don't meet those targets they get punished and they get have to pay millions of, of pounds in fines so on leaks which is the top topic of the day obviously leaks are going up because we've had a drought and you know that's completely messed up with the the, the entire the entire water system and that's happening everywhere like you know there's a wonderful story happening um, there's a wonderful story i saw that you know um uh, drought stones have been found in the rivers of in the beds of european rivers these things which were laid basically saying if the water gets this low you're gonna die um and you, you know they found them from, from sort of 1619 and we're now back down to that level so this is this is emphatically not something which is happening in only in the uk um and that's true, true of leaks as well like we are actually genuine, generally and genuinely quite a water-rich country. Um, the GMB union, so, you know, their statistic is only two, we only capture 2% of the rainfall that falls um, into, and, put, and put it into the, into the water network. So it has made economic sense, and everyone has agreed on this for, for decades. This isn't a sort of private na- nationalised point. Um, for, like, if we're losing some of the water, which, by the way, like, it's not kind of, we're, not, we're not losing it. It's just kind of going back into the ground. But if we're losing some of the water through the pipe network, we just pump some more water. And there's a th- there's a thing they worked out called the economic level of leakage, which is just like like this is how much water it's okay for you to for leak. And the regulator told the companies this is how much water it's okay for you to leak, and they leak that amount of water. And like they you know they hit the t- they hit the targets bang on. So, you know, and, and, and then yeah, on the financial stuff, obviously, the companies have loaded themselves up with debt. Equally, they are, um, an yeah, analysis by Frontier Economics shows that they are sort of 67% more productive now than they were under nationalization, which has lowered operating costs by 27%. Like there's a, you know, there's a good, there's, the, the, the point is, there is a good story to tell about the privatized water network. And even if there wasn't a good story to tell, there's at least a balanced story to tell. And it's not one you ever hear because people just say they're evil.
1: Yeah, Henry. This is politically speaking, it's sort of a, a bit of a sticky wicket for the Conservatives to be, even if everything as as Rob sets out there far more balanced for them in the in the era of twenty second sound bites to come out like, ah, oh, you're just de- you're defending the corporates and the capitalists and the CEOs. I mean, how how do the does a Conservative minister? kind of face this dilemma. Is it worth trying to go through the steps like Rob has done there and say, actually, this is how it works, and it's very heavily regulated and it's not really a free market. And
2: I mean it is very hard for them to do that. I think one of the one of the fascinating things that somebody pointed out to me once that I've never been able to forget is that if you go back and watch old episodes of Question Time, for example, you see you see this difference. When Black Wednesday happened, the first question time after Black Wednesday, Michael Portillo was given seven minutes uninterrupted to explain what happened in Black Wednesday to the audience before anyone came in and questioned him. Now, it's very difficult to imagine a Tory minister being given seven minutes to even limb the kind of case for the water companies. You know, the, the media environment really isn't there. So, so
3: just, just to interrupt, I had that literally today. I tweeted, I don't understand why it makes... I don't understand people talking about nationalisation of the energy companies like there's a global energy price, you still have to pay that whoever owns the company. And one of Tony Blair's advisors, John McTurnan, who's actually a sort of weirdly a friend, a bit of a friend of the, uh, of the show, um, tweeted back, if you're explaining, you're losing.
2: Yeah, it, yeah it's kind of the... And I, I, but I think that's a, that's a point in, in as much as because this case is difficult, the problem for the Conservatives is you need to avoid getting to a point where things obviously aren't working. Because when things obviously aren't working, The left have these very easy solutions, you know, nationalization, railways, nationalization. I think there are problems with how rail privatization happened. But I think if you, again, if you look at the general statistics, it's hard to argue that it was a bad thing. But what we've got is we've got into a situation where lots of things in Britain, including the water system, feel to a lot of voters like they aren't working properly. And that intrinsically puts the Conservatives on the back foot because it's not intuitive to a lot of people that market solutions to these things are better because it's very easy to believe that yeah. an evil company is skimming off the top yeah. and that
3: and a lot of the voters just weren't born then like they don't remember how bad things were they don't like, they don't know that you know, The water is so much better now. And I think the funny thing—the funny thing is—when we, so you talked, you touched on my
2: article, which was about reservoirs. Is the fact that the Abingdon reservoir was the one that I led on, and it's like the, the water company's been trying to build the Abingdon reservoir for ten years. They've been screaming at residents, saying, "Look, we need to build additional capacity," and it's been government that has stopped it. Yeah,
1: yeah I mean, we'll we'll come on to the the broader point about kind of NIMBYism and. Um, and the reservoirs that you mentioned. But Rob, you mentioned in your piece that, let's just talk about the other, you know, the other side of this argument. You say water privatisation is far from perfect. I mean, what do you see as the big problems? And, and are they soluble? Uh, that's not a horrible pun. <laughs> oh. That is not meant to be horrible. Are they solvable? Um, in, you know, is it the stuff of decades or parliamentary terms to solve some of these problems and
3: give voters the impression that things are working better? Yeah, I, th- I think quite a lot of them are solved. and quite a lot of them are being solved. Like the, you know, the water, le- the level of leaks in the system flatlined for two decades because, essentially, the the regulator said it's fine as it is, and we don't want customers paying any more bills, um, because bills had to rise quite sharply at the start of the privatised process to cover the massive uh, backlog of investment from, uh, from the sort of neglected um, nationalised period. But I think you're going to have a a situation. Sort of um, now, in fact you do have a situation now where you know people are saying, "Look, global warming, water shortages, you know, we could, Britain could run out of water. We really do need to invest in this stuff." And like everyone gets that, and that's why the water companies are investing again. That's why leaks have come down by eleven percent since um, in the last. You know, the target is to, for nineteen percent between 20, by twenty twenty five. They've already come down by eleven percent. Um, you know, that the nineteen percent saves as much water as is consumed by Leeds, Manchester uh cardiff and leicester put together like you know that you know the target is to halve leaks by by 2050 and you know on again like if you look at europe there's a lot of european countries not in germany obviously they do things very smoothly and efficiently there but um but you know but there's a lot of other countries where leaks are are the same or or, or even worse um like was on pollution you know the the, the, the environment agency has said Quite tough targets for reducing pollution. Pollution is coming down. The um, the UK water system currently monitors eighty. percent So one of the kind of things is like, oh, they've been sort of sneaking this sewage out. So one of the things. So at the moment, they monitor eighty percent of pipes for pollution discharge. That's going to be up a hundred percent very soon. And by the way, in Scotland, it's about like fifteen or twenty. No, we were going to come on to that. The
1: SNP's unique approach to pollution management. Um, is to just sort of put their fingers in their ears, isn't it? I mean, Henry, that kind of is of a piece with the way they manage quite a lot of things. I think.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, the the, the thing about covering this, and I know we're going to be dealing with this later, but the thing about covering the Scottish National Party's record is that it, it it's is one of the bleakest beats because everything they touch, every aspect of domestic government in Scotland is run really badly. And yet just a big chunk of voters don't care. You know, you look at ferries and everything else. Uh, I I mentioned in my piece, there was a big hydroelectric project that was going to be built in the Highlands. And the local council was allowed to block it because a completely different dam in Derbyshire failed and the local planning committee couldn't stop thinking about it. So that's sort of our Fukushima equivalent. But, but yes, the, the, generally speaking, what we've seen, especially also in Wales, we know we like to bash the SNP, but I think Wales is maybe the er uh, case is that what happened with devolution is that you ended up with areas which were so politically homogenous that you know, Welsh Labour opted out of most of the reforms, not just that Tony Blair and Tony, Gordon Brown were bringing into their credit in England under New Labour, but they also started rolling back stuff that John Major had done in the 90s. And the results speak for themselves. Public service performance in those areas is well down. But unfortunately, the Conservatives are not particularly good at highlighting this message. And because they've been very sloppy in allowing both devolved governments to basically abolish UK-wide statistics, you can no longer get comparable data on school performance or NHS performance between Wales, England and Scotland at the moment. Um, they've basically disarmed themselves of the ability to make this case. And I think one of the the most interesting things I've seen from both leadership campaigns is that they are going to be pushing towards the creation. It sounds very technical and very boring, but both campaigns are saying they're going to commit to forcing the, the, the devolved governments to collect comparable statistics. Now, in the long term, that means that on, say, water,
3: a future Westminster government will be able to say, look, here's the gap. Uh, yeah, I, I should just defend the Scottish water here. Um, so what happened? So Nicola Sturgeon was merrily, merrily tweeting. We in Scotland are investing, you know, a third more per head than in England on our on our water network. Um, you basically, and it's not because because we own our own national system, isn't it great? Um, what? actually happened there um, is that the Scottish water system has improved. Everyone accepts that. But it improved because basically for 10, 20, 10 or 20 years, <laughs> yeah, so basically, say 15 years since 1990, the English water companies and the Welsh water companies started investing very, very heavily. Scotland didn't performance massively lagged behind scottish water decided it had to benchmark itself against the private companies in england and wales who were doing so much better of it and started pouring in money and by the way the obvious reason that scotland invests more in, in water is because scotland is a much more geographically disparate country where you need to spend a lot more to to pipe water to people um, and in fact levels of investment in scottish water are pretty much identical now to areas of england which are also remote and hilly and um, you know have, have mountains and stuff in them
1: Rob, can you just expand a bit on something you said earlier? You mentioned this criticism of the the um, water companies that they've taken on lots of debt. Is this because, and you mentioned it in your, spe- um, in your piece, that they can't get money in because their profits are constrained by the way that privatisation
3: happened? I mean, it's basically financial engineering. I mean, Macquarie, the Australian um, investor, led this with Thames Water. Um, In in, in the same way as if you talk to people in the house building sector, they start muttering about persimmon. If you talk to people in the water sector, they start muttering about Macquarie. Um, So so what what basically happens is the, the amount of profit that the companies can make, like everything else they do, is very, very heavily circumscribed. They are literally told this is like this is the, by, this is the acceptable amount of money you can make, and and if you invest more, you can make more money, which is the incentive. Across, this isn't just in water across the the piece. The incentive to invest more is that they get told they can make more money. So, which is why this whole idea that privatization means no investment is so ridiculous because they love investing because it means they they it raises the amount they can make. But that's it. so what? But what, what a lot of the companies did, led by Thames, although it has tailed off now, was just geared, geared up. They took on lots and lots of debt, which they used to pay dividends and, and pay shareholders, effectively borrowing against their future heavily regulated profits. Now, and some would say, look, you know, these, the profits were always like no one was ever going to let the water companies go bust. These profits were always guaranteed. So this was a bit of a, a bit of a scam. This um, debate we've had this week about drought
1: and so on also feeds into a much broader problem uh, with the whole, I think, of British political economy, which is our kind of failure to get big strategic things done. Henry, you mentioned the hydroelectric um, plant there. You also mentioned the um, Abingdon Reservoir. And we were struck here at the CPS going through our archive. We found a paper from way back in 1990. And I should say, this isn't the first you know, recorded instance of the word NIMBY, but I'll just read out the quote. And it says, Closely linked to NIMBYism is the question of the high cost of housing, because it has become increasingly clear that restrictions in new housing and building have added to the strains in what is already a uniquely distorted housing market. I mean, it's fair to say that in the last 32 years, that hasn't exactly got any better. But it's much broader than just housing, isn't it? Because there's all sorts of things, transport, um, solar farms is one that's come up recently, reservoirs and so on. And Henry, you think, and you say in your piece, one of the solutions here is just it's just for the government
2: to kind of call it in just overrule local people yeah one of the things i've been saying for 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 ages is is that it's not reasonable to expect local councils to make decisions in the national interest because fundamentally it's not their job you know vale of white horse's council's purpose is to represent the residents of the vale of white horse and if they don't want a nationally important infrastructure project. The council's function is basically to represent that. But national government has to take a bigger picture. And so, you know, you, you talk about there's, there's very few areas, I think, where over the past 30 years, you can say the British infrastructure has kept up. We're still debating... Which airport should get a, a runway, for example? You know, why not just let them both have a runway? We took ages to approve HS2, and now we're constantly trimming it back. Uh, our, our largest ports, this is a meme thing on Twitter, but it is a, it is a, it is a point. Our, our largest ports are heavily constrained and are nowhere near the size of their European counterparts in places like Rotterdam. And now we're talking about water. Now, we haven't built a new reservoir since before I was born, um, which is a tragically long time ago at this point. And I was, you know, looking when I was looking up researching for the piece that I wrote for you guys, I was thinking, you know, why don't we have a national program to allow the government to build this? And it turns out we do. Because in 2009, we passed the Planning Act, which contains an entire scheme for the government to authorize nationally significant projects, including specifically in Section 27, reservoirs. Reservoirs over 30 million cubic meters of, volume, of storage capacity can be called in and approved by the government under the Planning Act and overall local government. Now Abingdon Reservoir was going to be five times that volume. And yet I had not heard about this. We'd had no debate, as far as I'm aware, we'd not really had a debate in Parliament about the question of ministers calling this in and using it. And so and this is what uh, to loop back to what we were talking about earlier, this eventually creates a problem for the Conservatives because if things, if, if you allow things to just start feeling like they don't work, People reach for the wrong solutions. Take housing, housing's the obvious example. I'm very vocal about housing. I'm trying to buy a house. You get people talking about why don't we have more council housing? Why don't we have rent controls? And you can scream into the void, these aren't going to fix shortages. These aren't going to allow you to have a home of your own if you're living four to a HMO. But people instinctively reach for those solutions. So conservatives really... They need to be ahead of the game in making sure that the system actually works, not trying to justify it afterwards.
0: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash newsadfree. That's Amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
1: Um, Rob, you are also a very vocal advocate of lots of new housing. Build, um, baby build. Indeed, but um, as am I, obviously. But my concern there is is not that it's not a great idea, but just the kind of time frame we're talking about. I mean, what do you think are some of the perhaps shorter term things what we might be able to do to remove some of the um, bottlenecks in the housing market. I saw this week, for example, we had a story about potentially having fifty-year mortgages that might, you know, increase affordability for some people.
3: Yeah, well, so that's that. That's an idea that the CPS has pushed that um, you know, long-term fixed-rate mortgages are are, are, a, are a very good way to sort of democratise low inter- The low interest rates we've had and still just about have, although that's getting getting uh, you know, because the. Essentially, the, but that's that's a very particular issue, do, do, which has to do with how the Bank of England regulated after the financial markets after the financial crisis and the the, the stress tests imposed that, that sort of basically took a whole chunk of people, like a million or more people, and just said you can't have a house anymore. Um, so that's a, that's a particular thing. I think there were all sorts of things you can do. I mean the. I mean, this, ironically, this report from 1990 suggests you know quite a, quite a few of them because we haven't I mean, it, been. It, it's a beautiful page of like you know uh, you know how much the Fre- how much motorway the French have built in the last 20 years and how much we built in the last 20 years and how long it takes to build a road. You know, so there's just like there's just a whole level of craft around this process. Like natural England has imposed w- rules on water neutrality, which are holding up the construction of more than 100,000 homes. This is a quango which has nothing to do. with so I'm getting angry. Which has nothing to do with house building which it doesn't even have in its mandate to take account of the impact on people which has basically just found a european court regulation and said hey yeah we're going to apply this sorry you can't build in vast areas of, of the southeast there's some re- there's the stuff we had a few weeks ago about um you know electricity capacity in 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 West London, all these data centers yeah, are set yeah. up along the fiber line out to out to Heathrow, and it means there's no electricity left, left left for housing. Like there are there are sort of really kind of simple solutions to those, which involve you know letting com you know letting companies actually you know, pay in advance, apply in advance, sort of let, letting the electricity companies anticipate demand in a way that they can't. Like. You, you the councils have no no planning capacity like you know they they're all holding on to their local plans because they all think that the um, the government's going to be nicer to them uh, once the Sunak or trust Trusts get in um, but equally you know they don't have any you know things take ages you have to go through you have endless impact assessments on every single little thing i mean it's all so endlessly litigated against and it just means nothing gets built or what does get built are only the are the, the very large schemes that very large companies with very large you know legal bills can can afford to sort of grind through the process
2: and then those are expensive and late,
3: and they yeah. and dis- they have really slow build out rates. Yeah, and and they're really unpopular because the quality is not as good and they're homogenous. Yeah, yeah. T- t- high, high speed too the, the, the HS2 is the one that always sticks with me because I
2: remember reading somewhere and I'm, I You're might a be son of I,
3: I'm a son.
2: I went. To, I went to school in Cheshire and Amersham. Cheshire and Amersham has no business voting against HS2, and we should pave the entire constituency in retribution. Yeah,
3: I'm. i <laughs> like, like this when I go, go back to the countries where i grew <laughs> up, up. Is from NIMBY Ground Zero. I mean, yeah. I
1: mean, I mean, <laughs>
3: I mean
2: honestly, Cheshire and Amersham is a constituency mostly comprised of fields with three tube stations in it. You can definitely turn that into a London excerpt. But I read somewhere, and I might be fluffing the exact figure, but something like the the weight of all of those things that Rob was talking about, the endless impact assessments, it costs about 15 times as much yeah. to build a it kilometre was the,
3: of... It was a CEO of Ferrovial, the Spanish infrastructure company, yeah. he, was, he was saying AGS2 is 10 or 15 times more expensive yeah. per kilometre than anything in Europe. Yeah, precisely. I mean, one of the things that slightly is that comes
1: across from all the, the litany of things that Rob's talking about is that if it's a Gordian knot, it's made up of sort of dozens of different strings that you need to slice. I mean, you've railed against, I think you've done pieces for us about natural England and their kind. Of, I mean, again, do you think this is a case of someone in Whitehall, we've got a new broom coming soon, just, to, you know, looking at the remits of
2: these people and saying you know enough's enough. I mean I mean realistically there's a, I think it's probably something for an incoming government after a period of opposition because I think you'd have need to done a lot of prep for this. There's a few things you can do first on the subject of quangos in general. I one of the things I think should happen is that the head of every quango should be appointed by an incoming government because we're not going to scrap them the bonfire is not going to happen but they should be subject to more democratic oversight and I think it would help if when, say, Natural England made this decision, we could say, "Well, the head of Natural England was appointed by the government, so we actually cut somebody." In this case, to the it. head
3: of Natural England was appointed by Michael Gove during his, and, his and, eco phase, and so we can we
2: can go and we can go and ask hard questions of Michael Gove. But realistically, the, the the thing you do with a Gordian knot is you cut it. And I think if we had a Conservative Party that was more ruthless and practically focused than it is, there would be solutions. Take housing. You know the Bob Seeley tendency exists. Sadly, you're probably not going to get a grand commission on the Green Belt or anything else. But I think that if a truly hard-headed Tory Prime Minister could say, sit down with most of the Shire Tory MPs and go, look, we're going to do two things. There's only six marginal seats in London. We'll put Theresa Villas in the Lords, and we'll pass a Metropolitan Planning Act, which basically just completely rips up the planning system in London. And then say And you
3: will love this because it means all of those Labour voters won't be coming out yeah, to your constituents. Yeah, it will create huge growth. It will create massive dividends which you can
2: then spend in the north for leveling up. But also it will just mean that all of these voters who are currently shipping out to Canterbury, to Brighton, to St Albans and all these places that are going Labour will just stay in London. Do that, and then say also, use primary legislation to make the Oxcam arc happen. Just just draw up a bill. And if you do things like that, you can. I, I, you can. It's a bit distasteful for me because I think we should be building all over the place. But you know, you can make a grand bargain with the conservative shire tendency, and you can say, look, if you allow us to do this, we will protect your towns and villages for say fifty years. But the Tory party instead mm. insists on going to the wall for every last seat. The campaign to protect rural England campaigns against developments in central London, and this maximalist tendency by the NIMBYs is going to come back and bite them because even if a Conservative government doesn't build, at some point a Labour government is going to build and they will like the outcome of that an awful lot less.
3: I should just say quickly for le- listeners who aren't familiar with Bob Seeley, he is the Conservative MP for the Isle of Wight and um, is very much the... I mean, a, a lovely guy. Um, hi, Bob, if you're listening. Uh, but, you know, he is very much the, the sort who, would if, if anyone tries to build a single house on the Isle of Wight, uh, he will lie down in front of the bulldozer.
1: Yeah, and him and Henry have had a, an on-running feud, partly on the pages of Cafex, about... I mean, I, I'm, I like Bob very much, but I disagree with him about as strongly as it's possible to on, on housing. And one of the arguments he makes is that we should build more housing up north. Where it's already much cheaper, which just makes Bob, Bob, absolutely Bob. no sense. To Bob me. once,
2: in a piece, in a writer's reply to one of my pieces, Bob sincerely argued that we needed to build more houses in towns that had suffered population decline, and I think that was probably the moment when I realised that this 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 uh, this push by Tory MPs to very generously distribute housing planning permissions in the north of England, where their constituencies aren't, was maybe
3: not the uh, the good. Yes, lesson. I mean, uh, I mean the, the kind of the ur surrender for this on was when. Um, Boris U-turned on his um, housing plans and gave a speech at party conference saying, essentially, I love brownfield. We 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 shouldn't build on our lovely, precious greenfield. Within seconds, Bob was putting out press releases saying, Boris has said it. No more building on greenfields ever, ever, ever. Well, actually, I think I I cherish
2: that speech by Boris because I think it is the closest that we ever got to an honest definition of what levelling up is. Because he said levelling up is about avoiding building on the chalk fields of stoke pogers. And I was like, yes. That's what it is. <laughs> I mean, these
1: are... So we've, we've uh, run into uh, our, our next segment of the podcast, which is on one of the more immediate... This, this thing about housing is obviously is a very immediate challenge to people trying to afford it, but, but the solutions are often quite long-term. In the near term, however, whoever becomes the next prime minister is going to face a... I, I don't like using hyperbolic language, but it does look like a cataclysm for a lot of people. Um... Henry, you're the Deputy Editor of Conservative Home. There was a piece on your site this week from James Frame from Public First, and he has done some polling, specifically of of working-class voters, um, many of whom voted Conservative. And the stats he puts out... And bear in mind that he's talking about now. He's not talking about when bills go up. He says 26% have nothing or less than nothing left at the end of the month. Uh, 29% have savings that would last less than a month if the main owner lost their job, which one of the few silver linings is we have pretty good employment. Um, In any case, 22% say they can't afford any more outgoings at all. So not just pubs and holidays and things like literally anything. And 70% say they're already taking action to deal with price rises, which I think we would probably expect. Um, The thing that really struck me though, is that this finding here, which is about the government's response, and it says 43% of these voters think the government isn't taking the cost of living crisis seriously. I think part of that is because we have a kind of holiday government at the moment, where we're in this weird um, interregnum. I mean, Rob, what do you think are the options available to whoever comes in? And um, we've had this kind of U-turning thing where Liz Truss initially said, "Oh, I prefer not to have handouts," and then almost immediately said, "Well, actually, we might have to do something." Is there any way that whoever comes
3: in can't can't produce a pretty, you know, big fiscal response to what's coming? No, I mean, I, I think something something big is coming, and something big has has to come. I mean, the and I mean, as James is polling says, essentially, people are the political uh, issue here with, with the Tories or, or, is, is that people are starting to blame the government directly when this when this started, there was much more of a sense of this is about Ukraine, this is about Putin, this is a global thing, you know, and now it's just like, well, yeah, but you no, know, you know, the government did furlough, it could do something on this. And you've had Starmer come out and say, basically, freeze the bills where they are, you've had the front page story on the Sunday Times, that wonderful newspaper, Um uh, so you know, yep. saying you know, competing the 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 industry suggesting freezing the bills and then you know, paying the money back back later. So I think there are, you know, there there are. I mean, I, you know, li, li, the the commitment to tax cuts is obviously uh, is, is welcome from from Liz especially the ones called for by the because Centre for Policy Studies. Um, the, <laughs> absolutely (laughs) Um, but the um but i I, but i think you know the the problem with the the problem with tax cuts uh, as a vehicle to do this is that there are a lot of people who don't pay taxes and they tend to be the ones um they tend to be elderly or they tend to be um on the on the breadline or they tend to be on benefits like this is a you, you know you're right about cataclysm like this is a you know this is one of our team here worked out that if if the darkest predictions about the price cap are right, then you're going to get to a situation where like half of the state pension is going on on your energy bills. Like that's just that's that's not something people can people can live with. And the the you know, this is, the pain is, is starting to be to be felt already. So I think something is coming.
1: Henry, yeah. what do you think in terms of a, the sort of size of package? We've heard a sort of COVID level package. You think that's feasible? Both political? I mean, I'm sure it's politically feasible. People welcome being given more money, but fiscally and kind of long in the longer term politics if you're saying the government will step in with enormous amounts of money every time there's this kind of problem
2: well i think it does pose a a political challenge for the conservatives especially coming as you say so soon after covid because what tends to happen after these big periods of government intervention is that the tide line of public expectations for government intervention is permanently higher so what we'll have had is we'll have had 2020 2021 with furlough and everything else. And then that has shifted public expectations. The government will then step in to insulate. And we, we, we talk about households and households are important. But the other question is going to be industrial and commercial energy bills, because that's potentially going to force a lot of businesses to the wall. Now, you know, I don't think the government will necessarily step in to help them the way that they did during COVID, but you can see people making the argument, you kept my business going for two years. Why are you letting it go under because of Ukraine? And so the government's going to come under more pressure to act. And if it doesn't act, you know people will hold it against it in that they maybe hadn't before. And so we risk coming out in 2023, 2024 with a set of public expectations about the proper role of the government in insulating them from crises, which are very dangerous for conservative politics.
3: That said, though, James's polling did have a, another, th- another thing which said that actually people... Are- you know, People do kind of understand that you know, if you spend stuff, you have to pay for it. And so he was saying like, you know, they, are put, they are now willing to expect, accept spending cuts, apart from in the NHS. I mean, whether that would translate into, into reality if you stop. But, but like, I don't think, well, I hope that they're not you know, completely...
2: I, 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 my, my cynicism about that is it's a bit like the polling which shows that people are in favour of house building and yet they're never in favour of a specific plan. I think that you can get people in a poll to say, yes, I understand that public spending needs to fall. But then, if if they notice it anywhere, they will hold it against the government, and that means that what you end up getting is you end up getting cuts, spending cuts concentrated in areas where the government, where public don't really notice, such as defence, where I think actually both candidates have committed to increasing spending. One
1: thing I'm sort of glad of um, looking down the track is that uh, Labour quite have, well Keir Starmer has repeatedly said he doesn't want to nationalise various things because, to my mind. This is quite fertile ground for the kind of quite economically illiterate arguments that people make. I mean, Rob, we've seen some it's always, absolutely... It, it's, all,
3: it's always boom time for the economically illiterate. Yeah, <laughs> um, There was some quite
1: crazy charts doing around. I saw one, um, I think this was actually, again, we're back to water again. There was one in the FT where they had a kind of cumulative line and a year by year line on the same graph, which I thought was... Uh, you, it kind of has to be seen well, to be I, 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 um, I,
3: I think the triumph here is the, is the Green Party claiming it would only cost £2.8 billion pounds to, right, na- yeah. to nationalise the energy companies. Which, you know, I'll take that. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll find someone to lend me £2.8 billion pounds yeah. to, to buy the energy companies. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a deal of a century. Yeah, I mean,
1: it's sort of... I feel like with... You mentioned you can get people to say anything in polls. I think it's probably quite easy to get voters to say they really want something nationalised, when what they really mean is they want it to work better than it actually does... Now, do you, I mean Rob? Do you think there's actually many voters who are like yearning for nationalisation, or is it just a kind of cri de coeur?
3: I think I, I think it could occur. I mean, the, the Blair the, the the Blair lot had a good um thing of this, which is this is the five second, the five. There's the five second yeah, yeah. and the five minute. Like the yeah. five seconds like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And then there's a kind of like oh, hang on a second, would it actually work? And then when you see all of the pledges stacked up, oh, actually, hang on a like free like free broadband really? What? How would that? You know that that kind of um that kind of thing yeah, yeah. but I mean I, th- I think on energy you know, th- you know the uh, the inter- the ideologically and in and economically the best way to do it is to try to let price signals and uh, you know uh, try basically try to protect the poorest um, as best you can the problem is that the the bracket of the poorest or the most impacted is it's such a big hit that it spreads so it's yeah it just sort of spreads up the Income stream, but then the you know the, actually the counter argument is that like if you do things like you know a price freeze like labour's, then actually you're incentivising people to use more gas, and you're giving lots and lots of cash to the richest people in the country.
1: And what would your preference be? Again, there may be different options that have you know pluses and minuses. I happily defer to Henry on this. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, wouldn't it be easy to just do a COVID-style uplift in universal credit, and you know that would get money quickly to people who generally need it most. But then you, you say this on, for example, Twitter or something, and you get pensioners, say, or various people who don't have much money, but who aren't on benefits. So they're, they're, I think whatever yeah. you do, it's a bit of a whack-a-mole
2: situation. I mean, yeah, basically the trade-off, as far as I understand it, um, is between complexity and uh, effectiveness. Because an ideal solution is one that targets the... quite you know The government does have limited money. It can't hose infinite money at this problem. Is, a, is that focuses the money on people who need it, which is not, as, as Robert said, is not people who are going to benefit from tax cuts. It's people who are on welfare or low incomes, or you know, pensioners who 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 are also reliant on low incomes. The problem is. Do the mechanisms exist for getting money to those people quickly? Now, for welfare, yes, you can do a universal credit uplift or a a universal credit extra credit or something like that. Pensioners, I suppose you could add something to the state pension. I'm not particularly well-versed on that. And then you basically have this lacuna, because as Rob says, this is going to affect a lot of households which don't currently fall into the welfare state but don't have much money. The alternative of, say, capping energy price bills and then bailing out the companies, the benefit of that is that it's relatively straightforward and you are dealing with the companies rather than with having to set up payments to millions of households the problem is you end up basically not only underwriting demand but giving money
3: to the wealthiest yeah. so so this is this brings us to to my pet theory of the database state i was state. literally about um, to say <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's like it's colville bingo um but yeah the, the, you know so many policy decisions are basically just completely dictated by the architect. like the the architecture the government has at its disposal and the groups of like, what can it do for people? This is how furlough works, like what can you do for people within the existing, what, what buttons can you push that actually make a difference now? And this is why we ended up with this system of basically Twelve hundred quid to the to people who are on benefits, four hundred quid to everyone else. Because you could have nudged and nerdled and tried to be more, more specific, but ultimately you'd have risked missing people. It would be more complicated. It would have taken longer for the. It would it would, it would you know, just you. Sometimes you have to go with the blunderbuss, and that's and that was that was what soon can ended up doing. Yeah.
1: Just looking in the long term, one thing that I think some people, I think Rob, you've raised it yourself. In fact, is the sort of doomier scenario, which is that this is not. Transitory. I think we're all looking at this and thinking, "Oh, we'll get through the winter, and then you know things will naturally cool." But we could see the Russian-Ukrainian conflict just embedded for years and years and years. They've already been
3: at war for eight so, years. You know. So the optimistic version of that is that if Europe gets through this winter, things only get better. Like they've been, everyone's been investing in like weaning themselves off Putin, uh, new sources. Like you know, it's you still get a crunch every winter, but it gets better and better. Like it, you know, we we. You know, the, maybe the price doesn't come down massively, but it you know it comes down. But I think yeah, I think we're in for ma- massively higher energy prices than we've been used to for a good number of years. And this is, this is another problem with all the bailout schemes. You know, Kirsten was saying the Labour's bailout scheme will only cost you know, twenty nine billion or whatever it was. Well, that's only if price, that's only if this is temporary. If it's permanent, when do you wean people off it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the most optimistic scenario is that the government uses this crisis to make the case for a massive program of investment. You know, they've got these this plan for small modular reactors from Rolls-Royce, for example. Now, I have been deeply skeptical about this being rolled out just because I think it's very unlikely that you'll get communities which don't like reservoirs to accept having, you know, a local Chernobyl or whatever the, the local NIMBYs will call it. But I think that if people are paying higher bills for years and years, it may create the political space for the government to say, we are going to roll out this program, we're going to commit the
3: money to it now, and we're going to get it built. But we still have solar farms being rejected, we still have Onshore Wind, being rejected. We have like. <laughs> Get West and by Liz <laughs> and, and, and by Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak Well, guys, this
1: brings us quite neatly that dimension of well, solar panels. Neatly ish. Neatly ish. Well, I'll, I'll just say it neatly. and uh, <laughs> uh, On to the final segment, which is it, it seems to have sort of, because the leadership race has gone on for so long. It has kind of reached a bit of a lull now. It seems to me. At the beginning, it was very frenetic. Lots of every day, you'd go on the BBC website and it'd be something the candidate said. And it seems that the the actual, these issues we've been discussing, the drought, high energy bills, have slightly um, taken over. Henry, you've been watching it pretty closely. You've been to or watched lots of the hustings. And um, what's your kind of reflection on the contest? Do you think that future? Do you think for the future we should have a shorter? Contest, for example, six weeks seems to me to be an inordinate amount of time for two people to basically be slagging each other off, and not very good as if you're a card-carrying Tory to see your your main guys going at
2: you know, uh, yeah, no, I strips mean, off each other. I have a very strong suspicion that this will be the last leadership contest held in this particular format. Um, there is certainly quite a cogent case, I think, for only holding it during opposition, because as you said earlier, we are in a position where because Boris Johnson didn't want to step down. Uh, We now have basically a caretaker government for six weeks over the summer, which means that whoever comes into Downing Street on September the 5th has lost the best part of two months in the summer to get ahead of the energy crisis and everything else. It has not covered the party in glory. I think that... It actually took longer to calm down than I thought it would. Um, normally, it's unusual for the ca- for the campaigns to be bringing out policies as long as they were. I think it's quite clear that the, that the two campaigns really don't like each other very much, and that bleeds over into how they're conducting the campaign. But at this point, it's, it's hard to see the justification for the Conservative Party having such a long campaign if you're going to open polling as early as they did, because most Conservative Party members based on previous experience, will get the envelope, they'll open it, they'll tick a box and they'll send it back relatively early. So what we've ended up with, according to what we've seen so far in Conservative Home Poll, which I know we're going to come to, is that more than two thirds of our our respondents have already voted. And yet we have three weeks to
3: go. What's the purpose of the rest of these hustings? So when, when this started, some of us made the case for a longer MP phase and a shorter member phase, because uh, you know, the, the, you, most of the candidates were quite unknown. And even the ones who were known, like Sunak so and Trust, you know, they hadn't had a chance to set out, set out their stalls. And that got absolutely shot down. The MPs just wanted to get it over with as quickly as possible, um, partly because they um, you know, they were just so fed up with, with, with... Many of them were so fed up with Boris at that point. The the, the, the difficulty with what, with what Henry is saying is that if you look at the polling of Conservative members by, by YouGov rather than Conservative Home... Um, of them say they would like to see the choice of leader returned to the members, MPs only. Uh, 50 odd percent of them are quite happy with the system as it is. 35% would like members alone to choose the leader. Like, if you're a Tory member, you don't get much. It's not a great, you know, it's not, a, you're kind of doing it out of the sense of duty. That juicy. is very like, true. You know, the, yeah. <laughs> you're getting to choose the leader every few years. It's pretty much the only perk you get of this thing, apart from getting endless emails saying, please leave the party a gift in your will. But like persuading <laughs> yeah. the, the Tory party to give the party membership to give this up, this right. I mean, I, I think you can shorten the process. I don't think you can take it away, as, as quite a lot of people seem to. I mean, on, uh, Conhome was obviously founded or at least made its name in Indeed. defense
2: of the membership ballot. So I should clarify that this is not a site position. Um, but I think ultimately, uh, on a mechanical process, you don't need their permission, right? The, cons- the constitution of the Conservative Party is not is not subject to member debate. I don't necessarily think we should get rid of the member round, but it's I. It's not do... subject
3: to member debate, but it has to be ratified by the the um, national the national, national convention, the national which does convention, have all of the constituency association chairs as you know, as part of. Any it. any if a, if a good leader can't stack the national association, they have no
2: business leaving the Conservative Party. Um, the, Iron the hand the, well, well no but that's just, the, that's just how the Conservative Party works. The Conservative Party has a very powerful leadership internal structure. That's just that's yeah, just how I it operates. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but but, 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 I, but I but I do think basically there's two changes that I well maybe three changes I'd make. I think yes, have a longer MP round. You know they know the candidates best. They know them a lot better than we do. You know I'm a journalist and I know them a, I know the candidates a lot worse than the MPs do ordinary members know them even less have a longer membership round i also think and here i'm I'm cribbing from paul there should be a final round uh, paul goodman Goodman, the the editor of conservative home there should be a final round so that we so that one of the two candidates gets more than 50 percent of the mp vote because currently we've got a position basically where because there's a three-way final round and it goes straight to the members Currently, neither of the two candidates got fifty percent of the of the MPs in support, which I think undermines them in the long run. And then, yes, ideally, if we've had a longer MP round, which allows people to sit out their stalls, we could have a much shorter membership round, and that would be less self indulgent.
3: But I, but equally, I do think like having the MPs do hus- having the candidates do hustings is is extremely valuable. Like it, ex- it exposes it does expose them in a way that. Like,
2: oh, I mean, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think one of the really interesting things from it from from me as a unionist's perspective is the way that the Northern Irish Conservatives basically managed to pressure. CCHQ into having a full hustings in Belfast, which is going to be held tonight. And that means that we're going to get a lot more from both candidates about their stance on Northern Ireland than we'd have had otherwise. Same with Scotland. I think the hustings are really important and I agree with you. I think the problem is that what we've ended up with is a system where a lot of the hustings, including the ones we're having now, which I really care about, are happening after the bulk of people have already voted. I think that the, the hustings should have been arranged so that voting polls opened basically after most of them had happened.
1: Now, Rob mentioned um, just then the YouGov uh, various bits of polling, and there's been quite a lot of coverage, especially towards the beginning of the race. There was quite a lot of coverage of your own survey, which you run for Conservative Home, the Member's Survey. So can you just fill our listeners in a bit on how this works? I mean, and are you going to be looking at the final result? You know, fingers crossed. Is it, is it going to accurately reflect what you've found
2: over the last sort of month or so? I mean, I'm not I'm not gonna lie, I take immense satisfaction in the in the salt tears of rage that the Conservative Home Survey raises from certain members of the of the Commentariat. So, yes, as you say, we don't call it a poll. It is not a scientific poll. What happens is that Conservative Home has a panel of several thousand Conservative Party members who've proven membership. That's how you, you get on the panel, and then we email them questions and they come and they answer and we publish the answers. Now the interesting thing about this is that, generally speaking, despite the fact that it's not constituted as a scientific as a scientific poll, our answers tend to fall in line, especially with YouGov. Generally speaking, historically, you can find, I've written articles about this on the site, our, our survey and YouGov's polling are pretty much hand in glove. And this has happened to the point where, even at the start of this contest, once the, there was a lot of skepticism, as you say, about the survey results, and we will have to see what the final results are. Although historically, we have got the results pretty close.
1: And where are they at the moment? Just to... So,
2: currently, our latest one, which we published this morning, was Liz Truss 60% and Rishi Sunak 28, I okay. think. Um, but And tw- tw- 12% Peter Cruddis. Yeah, 12% the, the Peter Cruddis militant tendency, uh, presumably. <laughs> Um, but, but there was actually a really interesting thing, which because I, we, we, I, you know, I, I keep an eye on the political scientists and what they think of the Conhome survey. And once YouGov's polling came out, which reinforced the message coming out of our survey, some people who'd initially been skeptical were saying, look, Conservative home survey is not a scientific poll, but nonetheless, it seems to, you know, if it's a broken clock, can it be a broken clock if it's right more than twice a day, I think is the question. And so it's a really interesting question about how we're getting to those relatively accurate answers.
1: Yeah, I mean, presumably when you're
2: drawing from literally exactly the same quite small stock of people ultimately. So Yeah, I mean, I suspect that our our panellists skew more online. Than than Conservative Party members ordinarily do, um, and I don't, I don't I don't necessarily know what impact that would have. Maybe they maybe based on the findings they skew f- slightly further right based on the fact that Kemi and so on did better in our survey than right. New Gov. But but no, generally cons- the cons- compared to the nation, you know, if you had two thousand people basically selected at random, they would not represent Great British opinion. But conservative opinion opinion of conservative party activists reflected by people who regularly read the grassroots conservative site I don't think it's a, as big a stretch as some people seem yeah. to think
3: and also you can just make a, a pretty good case I mean that um, as with any like you, even if the even if the sample of the poll is wrong the movement within the poll will be will be because yeah, be you useful. ask the same people yeah, every week yeah. right so, so, so yeah I think the
2: other thing should have mentioned is the fact that because we've been running this for years, it's actually just a relatively interesting data set in and of itself in terms of your know, opinions of the prime minister, the balance of opinion about whether or not they think the Conservatives are going to win the next election. That, that shift, is, it's nice when you know we get compared to external evidence and it, and it tallies up, but even notwithstanding that, it is a useful long-term data source, which we've been cultivating for, I mean, I don't know when we started it before. I joined Conhome, I think, so almost yeah. 10 oh, years. Yeah, no, no, no way before. Way before.
3: And, and, and I should say, uh, for, for those who don't know, um, obviously, it's, it, the, the, the Conhome survey is, is interesting in leadership conference. Uh, however, the, the surveys of rankings of cabinet ministers have an almost totemic power <laughs> yes. within, um, within, 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 especially around the cabinet table. I mean, okay. it's literally, it's kind of like, it's kind of like if, you're, if your football team's in the Champions League places, You'll sort of yeah. swank into cabinet with a bit of a, and the, the, and the dark conspiracy theories that I've heard about how people attempt to manipulate and rig this poll it's like it does. It, you know, even if it's not representative, it really matters. Yes. Yes. Yeah,
1: me and the lads have got a cabinet fantasy going on as well. (laughs) Um, Guys, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. You have the distinction of being, I think, by far our longest uh, episode of the year so far. Plenty to chew over. We will have a new prime minister in just over a couple of weeks' time. So who knows? Perhaps Henry will have you back on to discuss some of that. Rob, as ever, a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you all at home for listening. Do tune in next week for another episode of the CapEx podcast. (music)